Hey, it's Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures. Welcome to the first episode of our summer season. We missed you guys. It's been hard to take a break from making these episodes for you, but I think this season has some of our best, most ambitious stories yet. We're so excited to share them with you. Today on Kerning Cultures, we have a story that we started working on months ago, in September 2019, actually. And at first, we thought it'd be a straightforward story. We'd be able to have it out in a couple of months. But as we started to report it, it took us on a totally different journey from the one we had expected. Producers Dora Ghanem and Alex Atak have obsessed over this story for months. And I think where we've ended up is unlike anything we've done before. To do it justice, we're going to tell you the story over the next two episodes. Okay. Here are Dora and uh, Alex awesome. now. Well, if you're ready, should we just start? Yeah, let's do it. All right. In best, as best you can, can you tell me how you found the story? Okay, so I was really interested in looking at historical archives from the Middle East and North Africa. Dara is a photographer, and a lot of her work involves recovering and sharing these obscure or forgotten archive photography from around the region. And so one of the countries I was really interested in looking at its past and its history was Sudan, mostly because there aren't a lot of archives and images out there of it. And so I went on this like hunt and I would enter different like keywords into Google, like old pictures, Sudan or Sudanese archives, Sudan colonial history. And I kept noticing that this archive from one of Sudan's most well-known high schools kept coming up. And so I was like, okay, let me just like click on this. It looks like a blog out of the late 2000s. You know when blogs were kind of like coming up uh, on the internet in mid to late 2000s and they had this very like DIY feel to them? Totally. And so I, I clicked, I remember clicking on it the first time and finding like thousands of images of um, girls at this school in Sudan in like the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and they were images I've never seen before and they were images of these girls like swimming in the Nile doing like a play or in a drama class girls you know playing outside in a field and these are all like old historical black and white grainy pictures yes exactly they're all black and white grainy pictures but they're beautifully captured like beautifully captured and very well preserved as well the photos were all from this one high school in sudan a school called unity high school which actually was set up by british missionaries in the early 1900s and as Doris skimmed this blog, she found that it catalogued over 100 pages of posts, dating back years and years. It was way too much to take in all at once. So I didn't have time in one sitting to like go through the entire archive, right? I was like, okay, I need to go through this over, you know, maybe several days, weeks. So I would, you know, set a time aside every week to go through them. At first, Dara assumed that this blog was set up by some students, maybe a project for extra credit or something. But as she spent more and more time reading and combing over posts from years back, she started to notice that there was more going on with this blog than she had initially thought. Well, so was there a particular post uh, that you read that made you realize like, oh, shit, okay, 
So this is more than an archive? Yeah. I remember seeing this blog post. The title is An Email to the Former Trustee from Dr. Marina Hitchin, 8th May 2011. The blog post is a copy of an email written by one of the former head teachers of the school, a lady named Marina Hitchin. She says, Dear Sir, as the principal of Unity High School, I decided to research the history of the school, and one of my staff would archive it and place it on the internet. Internet is in all caps. I did not always like what I found, and it seems that there may have been some injustices and other things which were not at all in the spirit of Bishop Gwynne's intentions. Bishop Gwynne is the British guy who founded the school back in 1902 when Sudan was under British-Egyptian rule. In the period of the British Empire, it was common for the British to set up missionary schools in the countries they had colonized. And so basically she sends this letter to this guy in the UK saying that... I decided to research the history of the school with one of my colleagues and put it on the internet. But to be honest, what I found while I was researching the school's history is really upsetting and disappointing. And so I'm reaching out to you. This is what she's saying. I'm reaching out to you because I would like to figure out how these injustices happened and if we can restore some justice. So this is the first, like, letter or like blog posts that I read that made me think, okay, what is going on here? It seems like something really bad has happened at the school, and this person is trying to make it public. Over the next two episodes, we're going with Dara and Alex as they try to find out what happened at Unity High School that summer nine years ago. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Here's Alex. The story of Unity High School starts back at the beginning of the 20th century, um, around 1902, with this British guy called Llewellyn Gwyn. He was a young guy from Swansea in Wales, and he arrived in Sudan, employed by the Church Missionary Society from Britain, who ran Sudan as a condominium back then. Church parade in the Sudan, that country next door to Abyssinia. Sudan, unlike most colonial territories, was what's called a condominium. This is Justin Willis, professor of history at Durham University. It was jointly administered by Britain and Egypt. But it, it's a fringe case. The, the British were never invested in the Sudan, not like India or, or even Egypt. And this is Mohammed Al-Hassan. And I am an alumni of Unity High School for girls, as my dad always insisted on referring to it. He graduated from Unity in 1991. Uh, his class was the second year group of boys after the school became co-ed. And he basically just knows a lot of the history surrounding his school. At the height of the colonial administration, 200 British people, 200 Englishmen, ran the whole Sudan. Khartoum takes an interest and pride in welcoming its new governor general. And thousands of Sudanese assemble in the open square of their capital greet the arrival of the train bearing Britain's new proconsul. All of them put together could fit on like a train car. So it would have taken everybody. The Sudan was as strategic, it was a strategic holding. They needed to secure the headwaters of the Nile because they needed to secure 
you know, Egypt because they needed to secure the Suez Canal. Policing of the Suez Canal zone is an obvious exercise for the Egyptian army of today, and Anglo-Egyptian cooperation in the field naturally follows the Anglo-Egyptian treaty. That's it. Machines of quite a different... Britain occupied Egypt from the late 1800s to the mid-1900s, and the Egyptian economy was dependent on water from the Nile. So occupying Sudan, too, was a way for Britain to protect the income they got from Egypt's economy. But big colonial presence or not, the British Empire was pretty much at its height at the time. And one of the goals of the British colonial project uh, was to evangelize or spread the word of Christianity around the countries that it had colonized. The colonial uh, project is also in in many ways a Christian project. It's It's a Christianization project, right? Whether it was in India or in the United States or in the Sudan. And CMS missionaries had been active in a number of parts of the world. CMS stands for Church Missionary Society. Uh, That's something you're going to hear a lot in this episode. For decades before they came to Sudan, always with that aim of converting people, of preaching, of building churches, of turning people into Christians. The idea was to spread the message to everybody, both by invigorating existing Christian populations and by spreading Christianity into historically non-Christian regions. This is Heather Sharkey. Uh, She's a professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic history at the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a lot of support for the idea of trying to propagate Christianity in the Nile Valley. And I think it helped in the case of the Nile Valley that the area had such a romantic appeal already. But when it came to Sudan, Sudan was an overwhelmingly Muslim country. And that meant that in the north of Sudan, at the end of the 19th century, the British were very unwilling to allow a missionary society to undertake any work of evangelization because they thought that would provoke unrest and would lead to resistance against British rule. And they were very fearful of that possibility. Basically, British colonial rulers at the time decided that it would be too risky to outright be trying to convert Sudanese Muslims to Christianity because they didn't want to provoke a backlash against the British-Egyptian rule in northern Sudan. This was, of course, a challenge for the CMS, because they had to, or they sought to find a way of operating, but they couldn't actively evangelize. The only thing they could really do was run educational and, to some degree, uh, medical work. And so they started these Christian mission schools in the late 1890s. They were mostly small operations run largely by women volunteers brought over from the US or the UK. And these were women who did not necessarily have lots of career opportunities back home. And they looked to mission fields as lands of opportunity in many ways. And they were largely attended by girls too. That's part of the reason they didn't get much opposition from locals. Um, They downplayed the Christian aspects of their teachings and they were seen as small scale. They didn't seem capable of converting many people to Christianity. But because of that, too, they weren't really that effective. To be honest, they thought they had a religious mission. They proclaimed a religious mission to evangelize. That was the reason they went. Their papers show that once they got to Sudan they and those who spent time in the north, the conditions were very difficult. And they didn't have much time or energy or opportunity for that. So they would teach them some prayers and some Christian hymns, but there wasn't really a coherent academic or religious program that led to conversions. So the British Christians kind of realized that 
If they wanted their work to have any impact in Sudan, they'd have to make some changes. If they wanted to have uh, schools that they could sustain, it might make sense to enroll girls who came from families that were more educated. And that's how we see the origins of what led in time to Unity High School. Instead of the small-scale operations that the CMS are running in other parts of Sudan, Unity would cater to the daughters of elite Coptic families. So that's people that were already Christian. Copts, by the way, are a Christian ethnic group that have been in the Middle East and North Africa for centuries. So an early incarnation of Unity High School opened in 1902, and from the start it was designed to be different from other CMS schools in Sudan. For years, for years, certainly for I think the whole colonial era, the only people who went to the sort of private school that I ended up at were foreigners. And by foreigners, I mean either expatriates, members of the colonial administration, or foreigners meaning, you know, non-ethnic Sudanese, which is to say, you know, there were Greeks and Armenians and Syrians. So when Dara found the blog, uh, the Unity High School Archive, many of the pictures on there were from this early period in the school's history. And it's obvious that the people at the school at the time uh, cared a lot about documenting its history because there are a lot of these pictures and they're really good. None of the pictures have a credit line, so we don't know the name of the photographer or photographers that took them. But there's something about the way they're taken. It seems like they were taken by somebody very close to the school and to the people in the pictures. These pictures were made for the school, right? They weren't family photos. They weren't like photos taken by National Geographic photographers that were visiting Sudan or anything like that. They were taken by basically somebody that the school either hired or by a teacher that was already at the school that decided to take these pictures or that wanted to take these pictures. Um, and so these pictures are, are really fascinating because you think, wow, the school really cared about documenting its present and therefore now its past. Over the years, Unity built this reputation as a British church missionary society school where Khartoum's elite would send their children, uh, both locals and foreigners. And the bishop who started it, he kind of went down, uh, at least in British collective memory, as almost like a legendary character. On the Unity High School blog, there's actually a picture of Bishop Gwynne that was taken in 1899, so right before he moved to Sudan. Do you want to take a stab at describing it? Yeah, like, first of all, it's a great portrait. Um, Obviously taken at a studio. Let me try to read Nottingham. So this was taken in the UK. Um, He, yeah, he's a handsome guy, to be honest. Like, he, he has, like, his hair parted to the side, big, big, thick mustache um, that I guess was, like, the trend at the time. Bishop Gwynne was a really gung-ho soccer player, as we would say in American English, or football player, as you would say. He was a very well-connected, gregarious person. At the clergy house, the Bishop of Khartoum, the Right Reverend L.H. Gwynne, presides at a children's party, and here the highlight is the famous battle between the dragon and St. George. But the story has an unusual ending, for the bishop himself slays the monster. He was good at schmoozing, to use another expression. So he was really well-connected among male in male circles of power, like old boys' networks. Bishops in hot climates disguise themselves in topis, so you might not realize that the host of this children's party in the Sudan was the Right Reverend Dr. Gwynne, Bishop of Khartoum. 
We've spent a lot of time talking about Bishop Gwyn here uh, because it's important for our story. But Heather told us that he would have just been a figurehead at Unity. Uh, the majority of the staff during Bishop Gwyn's time were women, and they would have had much more involvement in the day-to-day operations of the school than Gwyn did. Bishop Gwyn stayed as a figurehead at Unity for the rest of his career, and in 1945, he was in his mid-80s, and it was time for him to retire and move back to the UK. And the story that gets told now is that Unity High School and other similar schools, they paved the way for academic empowerment of girls, helping open doors to higher education for women. And it's a legacy that really fed the good reputation of the school, even like 80, 90 years later, long after the British had left Sudan. It was the place to be. It was where all the who's who uh, you know, children were. That's Dahlia. She's an ex-Unity High School student who went there in the 90s. You know, if you wanted a proper education and a chance at anything worthwhile after graduating, you were in Unity High School. Everyone that I ever spoke to about it, you know, my uncles and aunts and, and you know, my, my parents' friends were all like, oh, you know, oh, it's, a, it's a good school. You know, it's a private school in a place where not everyone can afford private schools. So that's the background to the school. It's this very old, very historic school that has a reputation as the top school in Khartoum for decades. But when Dara found that blog last year, it looked like the people writing it were trying to tell the world about something that was happening at Unity that only they were privy to. And we wanted to find out more. And so I reached out to Dr. Marina Hitchin and Mr. Steve Gooch, who are the two founders of this blog, according to the About page. The first time I spoke to Marina... First of all, Doctor, thank you so much for getting on this call with me. I'm really sorry about the hassle. Okay, look. She was very passionate. I'm passionate about everything I do. Everything, not just that. Everything I do, I'm passionate about it. If you can't give 100%, don't bother, you know? Yeah, and she, the first thing she told me was, I thought that the story was going to just live and die on this online blog and no one is going to care. And I said to her, well, um, yeah, I'm really interested in this story. Like, can you tell me, like, what's going on? And this is what she told me. After the break, we speak to Marina. When we left off, Dara had just contacted Dr. Marina Hitchin about interviewing her for the story. Marina lives in Luxor in Egypt now. She runs a boutique hotel along the Nile. So we sent a producer to make the trip down from Cairo to meet her and record our interview. Okay, I'm recording. No, I've got no one there. Hello? Oh, oh. uh, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, sorry, I'm here. My mic was muted. (laughs) This time, both Dara and I were on the interview, and we started with Marina right at the very beginning. I'm Dr. Marina Hitchin, uh, a long-time international head teacher, retired now. I've travelled to different parts of the world, and then I'd taken some time out uh, to do some school inspections, so I'd been travelling around the world, and I'd got a little bit tired of just being one month here and one month there. So I decided that I'd look for another more permanent position, well, at least a five, six-year position, something like that. And in 2005, she got this offer to interview for a head teacher role at Unity High School. So she accepted and shortly after flew over there for three or four days. 
I was very clear to them that I'm not particularly a church goer, so I didn't actually think I might get the job. But I have a record of being quite good in the business, so I think they were overlooking the fact that I wasn't a church goer. The school was so very beautiful. It was, you know, obviously old, and it had some atmosphere in there. So I just thought, oh, this is just beautiful, you know, so I'd like to work in this school. Everybody we spoke to about the school campus described it in a similar way. Uh, Leafy, quiet, secluded. They said it was like a totally different feeling from the outside world once you stepped in through those gates. The building itself, uh, I describe it as colonial-style architecture. It's a few stories high, made of brick, with these kind of grand looping archways around the outside. Uh, There's a grassy field on one side, palm trees shading the walkways. It was beautiful. It was definitely larger than many of the schools that I've seen. Um, I remember... Um, to get to the principal's office, I had to cross through this, you know, vast field to get to the other side. It just, as soon as you see it, as soon as you walk into that place, you've just stepped straight back into colonial rule. This is Steve Gooch. He's the English and art teacher who set up the blog with Marina. This is the British Empire living, breathing in the heart of Sudan. That's, that's, it spacks you in the face as soon as you walk in. It's, it's British architecture. There's lots of British people there, British teachers. Um, uh, and it, it, it's, it's something out of Victorian England. I think Marina and Stephen were struck by the school's story, but they both noticed the same thing. There wasn't that much of that story on display around the school. Considering how much effort the school's early staff had put into recording the school's history with all these photos, Marina said that unless you went out of your way to look into it, you'd never know that it had such a rich history. I was looking around the school and I realised that unlike Eton and Harrow, which are two prestigious boarding schools in the UK, where they have all their history on display, they had nothing there. There were no old trophies, no boards giving the... um, previous uh, head girls or head boys or the previous principals. There was absolutely nothing there. So I, I went to the director and I said, why don't you have any history of the school around? You know, it's a very old school. It's 100 years old, over 100 years old. Why don't you have anything? So Marina and Steve decided that during their tenure at Unity High School, that they'd start some sort of project to tell the story of the school's history. So we started a blog about the history a blog where they could start to document uh, some of the school's history through pictures and documents, basically any archive stuff they could find. And so um, it wasn't very hard to get all of these images and pictures and documents and basically archival material because it was just like lying around in the school, like in the library and in various cabinets inside the school's, you know, administrative offices. Well, they were all over the school in different filing cabinets. Uh, my house had been the uh, principal's house for a while. There were some thrown in cupboards there. Uh, there were some in filing cabinets in the school. So, like, all the history was there, it just wasn't catalogued or displayed in any meaningful way? Absolutely, yeah. And she said that, so she, her and Steve started kind of, like, digging out all of this material... And um, they started kind of like organizing it according to like year and date and and theme and class, etc., etc. I started to get this understanding that Unity had been there quite a long time. 
It had gone through from the height of the empire, through the First World War, the Second World War, independence. Yes, the country's independence had just been officially recognised by Britain and Egypt. And the Sudanese flag now replaced the flags of those two nations. Several military coups, and yet there was no shred of evidence of any of those events anywhere around the school. I think it's fair to say that as Stephen and Marina found out more about Unity's history and Bishop Llewellyn Gwynn's legacy, they became more and more enamoured by it and by the idea of preserving it. I was getting obsessed with that, you know, building that archive because it was such an interesting project to work on mm. and looking at the way, uh, you know, that whole British interaction with the Sudanese community happened. They told us at first the idea was a hit, especially amongst the students. Of course, all the kids were looking at it. The parents were looking at it because they're all on there saying, oh, look, there's me, there's my friend. Oh, look, there's you. You know, they're all chatting about it. One day after they'd been posting these archive images to the blog for a while, he told us that the director of the school approached him and said, by the way, there's loads of stuff in my office that you might find interesting. You should go and take a look. He said, in my office, I've got mountains of stuff all in filing cabinets. It's all over the place. He said, why don't you go in there, just grab a whole bundle of stuff. Uh, he gave me this stack of documents and folders. I mean, it was about, I don't know, like four or five feet off the floor, wow. mountainous stuff, you know. Um, and I started going through this, and it was I was getting some amazing things in there, like old school registers from the 1930s, uh, pictures of the kids swimming in the Nile, pictures of the kids picnicking at the palace, kids playing tennis, pictures of the kids at prize-giving, pictures of Bishop Gwynn. So he's going through this pile of documents uh, given to him by the school director, spending his evenings in his uh, apartment on campus, scanning it and putting it up on the blog. And then he finds this one document that made him feel a little suspicious. And I thought, OK, what's this folder? Picked it up again. June 1995. And there's this letter, handwritten photocopy of a letter, basically appointing new trustees to the school. When Bishop Gwynne left the school, he left the management of it in the hands of a group of trustees. And the people that he chose, they would be trustees until either they left Sudan or they gave up their positions or they died. And the only way for new trustees to be appointed was for the current trustees to appoint them. And that was the way it was supposed to carry on through future generations. But what Steve said he was looking at in that school director's office in 2011 was this handwritten piece of paper that he said looked forged and that he said listed the appointment of five new trustees. Clearly there was an issue now, and this was, I remember this, this was about 11 o'clock at night. And as soon as I saw these uh, signatures and that letter, I phoned Marina up and I said, Marina, I've got something to show you. I need to show you this now. And she said, oh, she said, it's too late. You can't do it now. It's 11, it's gone 11 o'clock. See me tomorrow. I said, I'm coming. I'm coming now. So I went straight to Marina's house with this folder. And we sat there till about four in the morning just going over that letter, looking at these signatures, trying to figure out what the hell this was all about. Well, obviously, we couldn't come to any conclusion at that point. We literally had three or four sheets of paper. That was it. No story. Just a big question mark. I thought, well, what, what is going on here? Something, Something's not right here. What it is, I don't know. 
I want to be clear here. We couldn't find any third-party evidence that this document was forged. We spoke to the school about this recently, and they told us, quote, the allegations contained within this blog are unsubstantiated and may even be maliciously intended. But for Stephen Marina at the time, it was a big deal. Remember the bishop who founded the school, Bishop Gwynn? Well, Marina kept saying that this was an injustice to his memory. In part two, we follow this story through to its end. As it turns out, behind this simple blog turned out to be a whole world of loose ends, half-truths and conflicting sources. When you started discovering this stuff, I feel like um, it would have been easier perhaps to have turned a blind eye to it and continued your work and taking a salary and, and not, not, not going out of your way to do anything about it. Oh, really? Why did you, you not do that? What? Why didn't I do that? Are you normal? I did look. I can get a job anywhere in the world. But this is wrong. It is wrong. I don't, I don't, I really don't understand why you think that because a crime is committed a long time ago, you shouldn't do anything about it. That's not what I think. I'm just saying that you're, you know, you're, it's a, it, you, yeah, you're putting yourself on the line. And so. Yes, of course. Do you think I care about that? Well, that's why I'm asking. No, I don't care about that. I care about what is right and what is wrong. I don't care about a bloody job. I felt for a man who gave his life to something, who didn't want this to happen. That's next week. Part one of this story was produced by Dora Renem and Alex Atak, with editorial support from Dana Balut, Zena Dueter, and myself, Hibba Fisher. Fact-checking by Zena Dueter and sound design by Alex Atak. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. If you haven't yet, check out our other English and Arabic shows wherever you get your podcasts. And for more stuff in between episodes, follow us on social at Kerning Cultures. We post bonus content behind the scenes and random factoids that make us all smarter. <laughs>